This is Your Calls Media Roundtable. I'm Rose Aguilar. Now we are going to talk about the latest blow to reproductive rights in the United States. On February 16th, Alabama's Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos created through in vitro fertilization, or IVF, are legally children and thus protected. Those who destroy them can be held liable for wrongful death. The decision has alarmed women, doctors, advocates, and others who will be impacted by this law. The designation of personhood could have significant repercussions for reproductive rights. Alabama's Supreme Court is comprised of nine justices, all white Republicans, just two are women. This is in a state that is almost 27% black. Joining us are two guests, Katie Hershenroder is a fellow at Mother Jones covering gender inequity and violence against women. She reports that since the decision, multiple IVF clinics have suspended their services, leaving patients and providers in legal limbo, searching for answers about what to do with pre-existing embryos and already planned retrievals. Following the ruling, Democratic legislators in Alabama filed a bill that seeks to protect the process. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Alana Vagianos, a senior national reporter at HuffPost covering gender and politics with a focus on gender-based violence and reproductive justice. She reports that Democratic legislation seeking to protect access to in vitro fertilization across the country was blocked in the Senate on Wednesday by Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, a Republican from Mississippi. She dismissed the bill as a vast overreach and objected to a unanimous consent request from Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois. The Republican senator claimed the bill would legalize human cloning and commercial surrogacy. Hi, Alana. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Rose. Well, Alana, let's start off with you. Were you surprised to hear that anti-abortion forces are now going after frozen embryos? No, unfortunately, I was not surprised. I've been covering um, abortion access and reproductive justice for nearly a decade at HuffPost. And the discussion around abortion access and is inherently linked to uh, fetal personhood or what we're seeing now playing out in Alabama uh, in discussions around IVF. Um, many Republicans and many conservatives uh, of the anti-choice movement believe that embryos, which is when, you know, an, an egg is fertilized by sperm often outside of the body um, for fertility treatments like IVF uh, constitute as people and they should not be destroyed. Uh, they see that uh, some of these conservatives see that as murder. So, you know, when we talk about abortion bans, uh, whether it's at six weeks or at conception, um, or if there's no guardrails, often these abortion bans that Republicans um, are sponsoring or creating open the uh, doorway to ban IVF. And that's the reality that we are seeing play out right now. Katie, for those who are not familiar with IVF, you write that it's used as a treatment for those struggling to get pregnant. About 2% of births in the United States are because of this technology. It's a very expensive process. A single IVF cycle can cost more than $30,000. It's also complicated. Can you tell us more about IVF? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, in my reporting, I found that by 40, um, women have less than a 10% success rate. And so, you know, this is an incredibly complicated process. Um, in order to have a successful, um, IVF transfer, most people have to go through several cycles 
um, which, you know, as you mentioned, each cycle can be upwards of $30,000. And then um, on top of that, even to be able to retrieve the eggs that you need to, you need to be doing hormone shots and, um, you know, it, it takes a really heavy toll on the body. So uh, it's just an incredibly complicated process and not one that people go through lightly at all. You also report, Katie, that IVF is also uniquely a chance for queer couples to have both partners participate in the embryo creation process. Yes. Um, I was able to speak with a woman who um, used to work at Alabama Fertility, uh, one of the clinics in Alabama who paused their services. And she herself went through the process a few years ago with her wife and her wife at the time. And this was an opportunity for them to both be really involved in the process. Um, they decided that she uh, would carry the pregnancy and now she has a four-year-old daughter. Um, for other couples, you know, this is, this is just really an opportunity to start a family in a way that they can't otherwise. And um, this is also one of the reasons why we've seen pushback from um, certain people on the Christian right uh, that, that maybe don't want these couples to be able to conceive in this way. And the, this woman that you're talking about, Katie, is a former financial counselor at the IVF clinic, Alabama Fertility. And she told you her initial feeling was panic. Would the clinic close? How would she pay for storage of her embryos? She started building a plan to move to a clinic in a different state. She told herself she'd quit her job if she had to. Yeah, there. What I what I've been hearing um, since the ruling is is really a, a sense of panic, um, a sense of who knows. Like doctors don't know what's going to happen, um, patients don't know what's going to happen. Both of the process that they're currently going through, but also you know people who have stored embryos at these facilities and have for years. Um, deciding if they were either going to continue their family later or even donate some of those frozen embryos to other couples or other individuals who are trying to start a family. So um, I just heard a, a ton of panic and a ton of confusion and um, both from people in Alabama and also people outside of the state, you know, one of the, um, the, the, the consequences of this is that embryos were also not being shipped to and from the state. So even couples who were out of state but had embryos in Alabama were were really panicked. Alana, let's talk about how this happened. You write that the state Supreme Court in Alabama the decision centered on a lawsuit in which three couples sued an Alabama fertility clinic in 2020 for the, quote, wrongful death of their frozen embryos under a law meant to impose civil penalties for the deaths of children. The embryos were reportedly destroyed when a patient at the clinic accessed the storage area where the embryos were kept and dropped the embryos on the floor. A circuit court judge dismissed the lawsuit in the wrongful death suit, ruling that the statute did not apply to frozen embryos, but the Alabama Supreme Court reversed that decision. So, so what really stands out for you when you look at how we got to this place? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty baffling, I will say, um, even as someone, you know, like Katie and I who cover this a lot, I think, um, you know, obviously, for the couples who lost their embryos, that is 
absolutely heartbreaking. Um, you know, as Katie was explaining before, this process is is physically, emotionally, and financially draining. And it's not something that people, um, whether couples or single people, go into lightly. So the fact that they lost their last embryos, essentially their last ability, their last or only ability to um, conceive children uh, without, you know, unassisted um, reproductive technology is heartbreaking. But I will say that this, this is such a draconian um, ruling that it opens up the doors for, um, you know, possible new legislation and other states with anti-choice lawmakers in positions of power to start to do something similar. I will also say, too, this this wrongful death law, there's at least 25 other states who have similar laws on the books. Now, some of the laws say that there's... Um, uh, a, an embryo that's already implanted into the uterus. So that's, you know, life being at conception. There's different types of laws like this. Um, and they have been around long before Roe fell in 2022. Now, um, we're seeing lawmakers essentially weaponize them, um, to some extent without the guardrails of Roe. Do you have any idea if the, the, the people who, s- were or are anti-abortion any idea what what they wanted from this lawsuit so i reached out to all three of the couples um two of them um understandably declined to comment um i cannot imagine that the people who filed this lawsuit would want to take away the very right of ivf that they were using to create their families um, I have no idea if they were anti-abortion or um, pro-choice, but I can't imagine that this is the outcome that they were seeking. Hmm. So there, there's a lot of questions about the implications of all of this. Uh, the wrongful death, for example, can, Alana, can you tell us what does that mean exactly? How would any of this even be enforced? Sure. So the reason that IVF specifically is being paused in a lot of these fertility fertility treatments is because it's a medical procedure where doctors induce ovulation and remove eggs from patient and fertilize them with sperm outside of the body. Um, I know this is kind of rudimentary, but just for listeners who might not know, the resulting embryos can then either be implanted into a patient's uterus in the hopes of getting pregnant, or the embryos can be frozen for future use. So usually during that process, some embryos are discarded, whether they're, um, you know, they would be non-viable pregnancies or there was genetic issues with the the embryo. They're usually discarded. But now that act of discarding those embryos violates Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act, which is a civil act dating back to 1872 that allows parents to sue over the death of a child. Um, the implications are far-reaching. Uh, we're talking about IVF now, but what is to stop IUI, which is another fertility treatment that almost all patients have to go through a few rounds before they get to IVF. Um, in Florida, the um, a, an extremely conservative uh, state legislature was trying to pass a similar bill. Um, it was moving through the state legislature, which their session ends March 8th, I believe. And their, uh, the co-sponsors actually paused the bill because of the um, big backlash from this Alabama ruling. So, you know, I think that a lot of Republicans who have voted on the pa- in the past to um, 
uh, ban IVF or have, you know, not created protections for IVF in their abortion bans um, are now backtracking because they realize that uh, over 80% of Americans support IVF and fertility treatments like it. And it's not a, a politically expedient um, policy stance to have, despite um, us being in a post-Roe world. And Katie, some clinics say that they are afraid now of transporting embryos because of this. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I I think that that's only going to be increasing as um, other states start to either play with or or implement uh, similar restrictions. Um, I was able to speak with uh, Dr. Michelle Goodwin the other day, who's been writing about this um, for decades and has been writing about policing pregnancy for decades. And um, one thing that, that she's really concerned about right now is the chilling effect, uh, that this can have. That even if, um, there are rights in the books that say that you can, uh, transfer embryos or, or go through a process of IVF, um, that both clinics and patients will be really confused about whether or not they can. And we saw the same thing, um, with the fall of Roe, even whenever, um, people might be able to get abortion services or abortion pills up to a certain week, even whenever there were, um, you know, advocates trying to reach out. There was just so much fear and so much confusion. And so, um, yeah, I think it's really understandable that clinics are afraid. This is this is really intense to be potentially charged with wrongful death. It's it's not a it's not a casual thing. Today, we're talking about the decision by the Republican-controlled Alabama Supreme Court with Katie Hershenroder, a fellow at Mother Jones, and Alana Vagianos, a senior national reporter at HuffPost. I-, I wanted to ask you both about what you think of media coverage of all of this and how the media are talking about the politicians who are making these decisions, writing this legislation. In the case of the Alabama Supreme Court, again, the court is comprised of nine justices, all white Republicans, just two are women. Media Matters recently ran a piece called Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Spreads Christian Nationalist Rhetoric on QAnon Conspiracy Theorist Show. Peyton Armstrong writes that the Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Parker indicated that he's a proponent of the Seven Mountain Mandate, a theological approach that calls on Christians to impose fundamentalist values on all aspects of American life. Here is Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Parker speaking on a QAnon conspiracy theorist show. God created government. And the fact that we have let it go into the possession of others. It's heartbreaking for those of us who understand, and we know it is for him. And that's why he is calling and equipping people to step back into these mountains right now. And uh, as I said earlier, if he calls you, he's faithful. He will do it. And so... Respond with wisdom uh, and proceed with wisdom because the call is important and it needs to be accomplished for his glory. Yeah. 
That is Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Parker speaking on a show that is hosted by a QAnon conspiracy theorist. According to Media Matters, the Seven Mountains mandate is a quasi-biblical blueprint for theocracy that asserts Christians must impose fundamentalist values on American society by conquering the seven mountains of cultural influence in U.S. life, government, education, media, religion, family, business, and entertainment. So I just wonder, Katie, what are your thoughts on how major media are really connecting the dots between all of this? I mean, to think that we are here in the year 2024... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we've seen over the past week a lot of journalists making these really important connections between what is happening in this singular Alabama ruling and what is happening, you know, by and large across this country with religious, really strict religious doctrine being introduced um, not only into the court systems and court rulings, but, um, you know, into legislation itself. Uh, Zooming out, this is deeply about um, fetal personhood. This is deeply about religious beliefs that um, life begins at conception. Um, Just for example, I encourage everyone to read the ruling from Alabama. Scattered throughout it is biblical scriptures about um, you know, human life and God's image and, and human life beginning at conception. And, um, I think that journalists have done a really good job of, um, making those connections. And I hope we see more of that because none of these things, of course, are happening in a vacuum. Alana, what are your thoughts? I couldn't agree more with Katie. I, I do wish that more journalists would look back at some Republicans, um, policy stance and voting records, especially, I mean, um, we've had definitely some journalists on the Hill talk to congressional House Republicans about how I think it's over 120 uh, House Republicans co-sponsored the Life at Conception Act, um, which did not have exceptions for IVF versus the uh, Senate bill um, created by Republicans did have a carve out for IVF. And many of those um, House Republicans are now backtracking on their past stance or they're being really wishy-washy. And I think it's really important that um, journalists ensure that the public knows what Republicans have said on, in the past, what their their stance has been on IVF in the past. And also, like Katie said, ensuring that we connect that this IVF issue is is not new this is exactly where many um reproductive justice advocates have been saying we've been going ever since um the dodge decision it's also important to talk about what is happening on the ground as a result of these laws Uh, katie you linked to a piece in the Alabama Reflector by Anita Wadwani called Tennessee, Alabama, and South Carolina lead the nation in arresting and criminally punishing women for allegedly posing a danger to their fetuses, according to a report by the group Pregnancy Justice. Nearly 1,400 people were arrested or subject to bail, sentencing, and probation for conduct related to their pregnancies, 
Between 2006 and the Supreme Court decision in June 2022, the vast majority were poor white women, though poor black women were disproportionately represented. 649 pregnant women in Alabama had been arrested in that time period, the largest in the country. You just have to wonder, Katie, why isn't this getting more attention? Mm. Yeah. So I think that one thing we've definitely seen over this past week is a lot of noise about IVF and about um, what it means to criminalize those who are seeking to build a family. And I also think it's important that we remember that this has been happening for a really long time um, and just hasn't gotten enough noise, hasn't gotten enough attention. Um People who are trying to get pregnant or have gotten pregnant across this country have been criminalized for miscarriages, have been criminalized for child endangerment, feticide. Um, and, and it's, it's been happening long before Roe fell. And, um, you know, I think that that ought to get as much attention as a ruling like this. And I, and I think especially moving forward. Um, making those connections between the criminalization of pregnancy more broadly and what is happening in these, I guess, larger um, court rulings is, is going to be really, really important. Exactly. And speaking to that point, Alana, we don't have much time, a couple minutes. Uh, you just wrote a piece, When Your Home State Also Becomes Your Abuser. The leading cause of death for pregnant women is homicide, most often by an abusive partner with a gun, and Texas is forcing victims to stay pregnant while making it easier for abusers to get guns. Can you give us a snapshot of this piece? We have about two minutes. Sure. Thank you so much for asking about it. Um, I've been reporting this out for a few months, and basically... um, the leading cause of death for pregnant and postpartum women is homicide. Um, and that is uh, above uh, sepsis, hypertensive disorders, um, blood loss, things like that, that we usually hear about when it comes to maternal mort- mortality rates. Um, Texas at the same time is loosening its gun laws and it will actually hear a, it'll be the kind of testing ground for a Supreme court case that will be heard um, later this year, uh, or that will be decided later this year to ensure that um, domestic abusers will be able to keep their guns despite uh, being charged with domestic violence. So as more women stay pregnant or are forced to stay pregnant, um, that is the most dangerous time for domestic violence victims. The uh, They face a heightened lethality of violence, and they also face more violence. Um, so the mix of this is kind of three converging crises that we're seeing play out in Texas first, but we also are seeing, um, an increase in national or excuse me, domestic violence, uh, reports or calls to the national domestic violence hotline across the country. We're seeing it happen in Texas first because Texas banned abortion earlier, actually in September, 2021 at six weeks before the Dobbs decision. So I think Texas, we're seeing this happen first, but um, the rest of the country is is not far behind, especially in places that have uh, lax firearm laws. As you report, in the last decade, the amount of women shot and killed by an abuser has nearly doubled in Texas. Yeah, it's 
it's absolutely wild. Like I was reporting this out and there's, there's really not much to say other than it's uh, extremely disheartening. And the, the other thing I'll say is that what's hard is that um, most of these organizations and shelters and nonprofits who are trying to help domestic violence victims, they're funded by the very institution that is enacting these gun laws and enacting these abortion bans. They're funded by the state of Texas. So they're also working with one hand behind their backs. Mm. We're going to have to do an entire show about this. Thank you so much Mm. for your reporting. Alana Vagianos is a senior national reporter at HuffPost. You can find her pieces at yourcallradio.org. And thank you also so much, Katie, for your reporting. Katie Hershenroder is a fellow at Mother Jones. Thanks so much to both of you for your important work and for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Malihe Razazan for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thanks so much for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. Mm-hmm.